This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to another edition of the ITES. I'm Jimmy Murphy. That's Pierre McGuire here on the Sick Podcast Network. Turn up your volume. Because you're about to listen to The Sick Podcast. The, Sick Podcast. the Eye Test with Pierre McGuire and Jimmy Murphy. The Stanley Cup winning Colorado Avalanche. And after 22 years, Raymond The Sickest NHL Podcast. It's going to be sick. Hey, welcome to another edition, the final edition of the eye test in the year 2023, and it's flown by. I mean, we've only been on since November, so yeah, but still, uh, we're having a great time, and we're leading into 2024 on a high note here, and excited to be with you, Pierre. Happy New Year. Thanks a lot, Jimmy. Happy New Year to you and all our viewers and listeners. Happy New Year. Yep, and it's uh, it's a good time of year right now. People can look back and look ahead to what they may want to accomplish, and we'll get to that in 2024 is our question today, and I want to urge you all to uh, put it there in the comments section is what should be the new year's resolution for your team? All right. So what do you want them to do better? What do you think they need? And it kind of goes hand in hand with what we said leading into Christmas. Uh, you know, what was a Christmas wish list for your team? Um, but what's a new year's resolution? And I, you know, I would look at as most people do right Pierre, is new year's resolutions or something you want to correct. Uh, it's always something you want to get better at, whether it's a diet, uh, what have you, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know if that's me right now, but I, I've got some other ones I, I definitely need to correct in this year coming up and I'm already focused on it. So looking ahead to it, but Pierre, uh, I think, you know, let's get right into this. Cause we were just watching these clips and we're going to show them in a second here. We just watching them off air. Um, and on Thursday after practice, the day following his team beating the Buffalo Sabres 4-1 to out of the break, the Boston Bruins snapped a four-game losing streak. And I asked Jim Montgomery after practice on Thursday if, you know, in that game, did he see his team, you know, kind of stunt any momentum changes, any, any little bit of confidence that Buffalo got? Did he see moments where they were like, nope, we got this, we're under control, um, because that's something they really haven't been doing much this season. Uh, and, you know, so I asked him about that. But first off, I want to get to – I kind of brought that to a broader scale, Pierre. And you and I have been discussing this a lot. Just all the different good teams like Colorado, Vegas, the Bruins, who have you, the New York Rangers. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these teams that people had pegged as Stanley Cup contenders are having a lot of trouble protecting leads, Pierre. Whether it be a two-goal lead, three-goal lead – or four-goal lead is, by the way, we called it here, watch out for those Arizona Coyotes, coming back 
on the Colorado Avalanche to win 5-4 the other night after our last episode. So this is what Jim Montgomery said about that, and I'll get your take on it after, Pierre. It's the league. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed it, but it just seems to be so many two, three-goal comebacks everywhere. I saw like two of them last night. Uh, what do you credit that to? Is it just a lot of these players coming into the league are more offensive-minded, or is, is there any explanation, you think? Or? I think the skill level throughout the four lines is the highest it's ever been. Um, and if you get opportunities, guys, people are going to score more goals, and, and people don't stop pressing. Like, And I also think, conversely, there's not as many people who know how to check in the league. And you get younger players in the league that get to the league, usually because of their offensive prowess. they got to be taught how to check. And that's why we get overwhelmed at times. It's why Colorado does. All the best teams have been overwhelmed. I think every... Vegas. Team that's yeah has given up or lost leads or given up seven goals in a game. I don't know what it cause is for the other teams, and I don't care. I don't know if it's goaltending. I don't know if it's structure. <laughs> I just care about the Bruins, but I know it's happening throughout the league. Yeah. I think he's right, and I, I love what he says there, Pierre, about uh, how players need to be taught to hit nowadays when they come into the league and. You know, you and I were uh, kind of discussing that and the reasons for it. So let's let our uh, listeners hear your take on that. Well, for, there's a few other things than what the coach said, because I totally agree with everything Jim Montgomery said there. But I'll add a couple other things. In 2005, 2006, when we came out of the nuclear winter and they refurbished the rules of the National Hockey League, Jimmy, one of the big ones was taking out the two-line pass. The red line came out in terms of passing from inside your blue line to the opposition's blue line. That's opened up unbelievable opportunities for teams to come from behind. Back in the day when the New Jersey Devils were running roughshod over the league or Detroit was running roughshod on the league, New Jersey would deploy a 1-2-2 trap. People couldn't get through it. It was tackle football in the neutral zone. We used to call it creating a quagmire. It was a swamp in the neutral zone. You couldn't come back. Detroit would play the left-wing lock. You couldn't come back against it. So that's one thing. The second thing is zero tolerance and obstruction in the offensive zone. So now players can get to the net off the cycle. Back in the day, they'd get tackled. Ask Yarmir Yager, ask Wayne Gretzky, ask Mario Lemieux. The star players couldn't get to the net. And then the third thing, and nobody wants to talk about this, the equipment manufacturers deserve a huge amount of credit. They had the insight and the ability to create these new sticks. Players can shoot the puck harder and score from further away than ever before. And because of that, they can elevate the puck better than ever before. And because of the way the goalies play in the game today, usually the butterfly or dropping yep. to their knees, you got to score up high if you're going to score on the initial shot. And so we're seeing more of that. So I agree with everything Jimmy said. Here's why I think one of the new trends in scouting is getting players that are undrafted players, whether it's out of junior, out of Europe, uh, out of U.S. college hockey, that know how to check. Because those guys usually don't get drafted. They don't have the numbers because of yeah. how important analytics are. So yeah. now the art of the deal for the amateur scouts is finding players that have tremendous hockey sense to me and the ability to check and still produce offense. And most of those guys uh, aren't drafted players. They're guys that were looked over in the draft. Yeah, for true. And, and so now that in terms of scouting for those guys – like we say, you got to use the eye test there. Uh, it's not always going to tell in the stats and the analytics. All right, so Pierre, I then asked him actually prior to this, but we'll play this one now. 
uh, how this applied to his team because mm. he's had some roller coaster games to watch. And I, I'm sure, you know, the fans love these games that the Bruins have been in because they're up and down, but the coaches, they need some tums after this. So let's see <laughs> what Montgomery said to this. You know, it was starting to shift and your guys didn't necessarily answer. What did you think of the way they did that last night at any point where Buffalo had a window to kind of turn things around? I thought defensively we checked really well. That uh, We gave up a couple of chances, but I mean, you know, every NHL team is going to create chances uh, that we probably didn't like. But in general, our defensive game, uh, being over on the right side of pucks, getting above pucks, whether it's forwards or defensemen, eliminating unnecessary risk, I guess, of our game, really allowed us to control that game defensively. I thought our, our game offensively was just average. You know, I thought we could have um, built our game and grinded them down a little bit more. Uh, we did that early in the first. I thought we got away from it after that consistently. We did it in moments after. And the thing about this year that is, is good is like we, we've struggled and when you struggle you learn how to get out of the struggle and hopefully that's what we're learning right now and when you do that it helps your team develop some resiliency down the line right and um, I think that the struggle that we've gone through is only going to help us it's only going to be a good thing in the long run it sucks when you're yeah. It's like sometimes you're like, are we ever going to get out of this, you know? Because we are. We're getting overwhelmed, like you said. We used to just overwhelm people all the time, you know? And that's not happening now. And mm -hmm. it's a good thing because you got to learn how to fight out of it and get back to your habits that allow you to build your team game and overwhelm other teams, whether it's defensive or offensive principles. I love that, Pierre, because I'll yeah. tell you last year, heading into that series against the Florida Panthers in the first round, and I'm not lying. I, I said to my mom, I said, I don't like this. I, I don't like everyone's saying they're going to kill him. They're going to sweep him. And I said, but they haven't been tested all year. They haven't had to go through adversity. And it's just it's just come too easy for them. And I'm not, that's not a bad thing per se. But it's, when you get to the playoffs, you better be prepared for things to change because it's a whole different game. In the playoffs. And, you know. It just, I'll tell you, Pierre, it just felt like maybe they were ripe for the picking because of that lack of adversity that they face. And now he's saying, you know what? This is good. We're getting this in November. Remember, and I agree. And I hope that's somebody telling you about a good trade going through, Pierre. No, I apologize for that. Um, I have a mother-in-law that's having a big birthday. Oh. And so she's calling um, about her birthday. You can hear her calling oh, the other <laughs> so She's talking to my wife, uh, not me. I and I apologize for that. That's so true. everything you just said is is couldn't be better. Um, yeah, yeah. And the coach said couldn't be more spot on. It, it, it the, the Bruins, though, to be fair, Jimmy, they said the right things coming out of last year after they lost to Florida. We're going to learn from this. Things are going to get better. We're going to be a more of a dynamic team. Then Patrice Bergeron retires. Then David Krejci retires. So this was all supposed to be dealt with in the offseason, and they tried. They tried to address it, um, but now guys are learning. I think you would agree because I texted you the other night about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Where would the Bruins be without Charlie Coyle? Oh, oh. MVP. I mean, 
a team, team easily. He's he's been the MVP of the Boston Bruins. Yeah, yeah. And I know they've got great depth and goal. And I and I'm a huge fan, as you know, of Charlie McAvoy. And and when he's healthy and and not suspended, he makes a huge difference for the Bruins. Hampus Lindholm makes a huge difference for the Bruins. Obviously, David Pasternak. But honestly, when you lose that center ice depth, you're going to go through some trials and tribulations. Jimmy, it's just the reality of being in the National Hockey League. So that's why I say you lose Bergeron, you lose Krejci. Now you got problems because it's not that easy to find those guys. They don't fall off trees. But to their credit, and I think to Coach Montgomery's credit, he's coached fantastically well. His assistants, Kelly and and, uh, Sacco, have done a great job. Both of those guys have been outstanding for him. Um, But I think for the Bruins anyways, and it's part of it for a lot of teams, if you don't have huge center ice depth, it's hard to win with consistency in this league. It's really hard. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, one thing I think too, Pierre, that you know Bergeron brought that it's underrated is just him winning those defensive faceoffs, yeah. right? And, and getting them a chance to cycle the puck out and, and limit possession in the ozone for the opponent. And they're not getting that this year, and they're running in circles. And you know, we're going to get to it in a second uh, what what happened with Canada and Sweden. But in that game, you were saying Sweden was just cycling around, and it's so important to limit the time that the opponent's in your zone because you're human, you're going to get tired and your goalie can only do so much. And um, I, I think that's what the Bruins are learning right now is how valuable Bergeron was in that sense. And every team too, though, going back to the first soundbite from him too. I mean, you look at Colorado, you look at Vegas, uh, two Stanley cup contenders. Yeah. I think they're going to be there and yeah, they're going to be teams challenging for the cup yeah. in, in May and June, but this isn't, you know, I don't know, not even your dad's NHL. This isn't, you know, it's like not even your big brother's NHL anymore, man. This is a different league where, like he said, there's skill. And like you said, the equipment, the sticks, it's it's very hard if you don't have the right people for the right roles, which aren't necessarily are always able to be scouted, like you were saying, through numbers. It's more through the eye test. It's more through seeing can this guy fit in that slot and be there in that certain moment when we need him with two minutes left in the defensive zone to protect a lead or to give us a chance down the other end? So it, the game's changed and everyone's adapting. Blocking shots, taking hits to make plays, uh, winning races in your own zone, having to go back 200 feet to get a loose puck and help your defense. That's not sexy stuff. No. And a lot of times you don't get paid a lot of money to do that. The, the guys that are getting the helpers and getting the goals are getting, or the power play minutes are getting the big numbers financially. Um, and the guys that do that, usually they last longer. The guys that play that hard game that have to defend the lead in the last minute of the period or the last two minutes of a game, those guys don't last as long. They just don't. And they're very valuable guys. Um, but the truth is, and I'll use one guy in particular, Pierre Edward Belmar. Think mm. about him. He played nine years of pro hockey in Europe. He's a guy born in Rouen, France. There are not a lot of guys from France playing in the yeah. NHL. And, and he left and went to Sweden, and he played nine years of pro hockey in Europe before the Philadelphia Flyers gave him a chance. Go look at that guy's record. And yeah. his numbers aren't great offensively, but you talk about the eye test. Yeah. Carol where Belmar passes it in spades everywhere he goes, whether yeah. it's Philly, whether it's Tampa whether it's Colorado, whether it's Seattle, it doesn't matter. Wherever he is, he makes a difference. He yep. makes a huge difference for his team. Those guys are hard to find. Yeah, you know, Blake Lazat. Blake Lazat plays for the LA Kings. How many people even know who Blake Lazat is? Right. Honestly, he's a very good player for them. They're four lines deep at center, and he's a big reason why they're so good. 
Their yeah. fourth line doesn't give up anything. You heard Coach Montgomery talk about it. Those depth players that know how to play, they're really hard to find. Especially as this year gets deeper into the season and then the playoffs for sure. All right. I mentioned it there, Pierre. And, uh, you know, here we go. Major upset. Well, maybe not major, but an upset for sure uh, in the World Juniors as Canada is shut out to zip by Sweden. Pierre, you warned our viewers about Sweden. You said there's three teams, USA, Canada, and Sweden. And you said Sweden could surprise people and, and squeeze in as a silver or gold there. Uh, your take on this game today, Sweden-Canada, what Sweden did right and what Canada did wrong. Uh, what Sweden did right is they dominated the puck at key times in games. Their power play wasn't great, but they found a way to overcome it. They had a four-minute power play in the first period. They didn't really create a lot of momentum out of it. You could see the crowd was getting a little antsy in Gothenburg. I've been in that building many times, and those fans are unbelievably passionate. Um, but what happened was they dominated on the cycle, Jimmy. They forced Canada's best players. And when Canada went to a shorter bench, you could see it. They didn't have the same acceleration in their stride. So for almost 60 minutes, Sweden forced Canada to defend rather than attack. I thought the Swedes owned the neutral zone defensively. I thought the Swedes broke down the Canadian forecheck more often than not, which is something we never really see at the World Junior. Usually Canada dominates and creates all their chances off the forecheck. But I thought the biggest part of today's game for Sweden was forcing Canada to defend more than attack. Mm -hmm. And because of it, I think they were able to control the territory and really frustrate Canada. And, and, you know, on Canada's side, you just said everything they did right there. What do you think is the main issue right now for that team as, as they start to gear up towards the medal round? Um, I've seen this movie before. I don't think it's something that uh, the Canadian coaches or players will panic about. Um, the truth is, is that this is a well-constructed team. I know everybody's going to say, well, what about all the NHL players that could have been on their team that aren't there? That's fair. It's fair, but they're not there. So you have to find a way to overcome it. Uh, yeah. I remember the 2006 World Junior, remember like it was yesterday, it was in Vancouver coming out of 05. The 05 World Junior team that Canada sent would have been the best world junior team that ever went. And yes. the reason why is because there was no NHL hockey. So players like Sidney, well, Crosby was a draft that year, but Patrice Bergeron, Corey Perry, Ryan Getzlaff, Mike Richards, Jeff Carter, I mean, go down the line, Shea Weber, Dion yes. Phaneuf. They were all playing in the world junior. They all would have been in the NHL and they were in the NHL the next year. So that Canadian team was great. And everybody went into Vancouver in 06 and all. All those star players aren't going to be very good, are, are all gone. We're not going to be very good. Canada found a way to win, and they found a new star player. His name was Jonathan Taves. Yep. And, you know, people forget that. And, and so what Canada does really well, they get great coaches to go in there. They make it really hard to make their team. So when guys make it, they really appreciate it, and they know it's Canada's bowl season. They just know it, Jimmy. And so these players know it's a massive responsibility. They cherish the opportunity to be part of the responsibility, but they know at the bottom of their soul that they're going there to win. They're not going second place doesn't resonate with Hockey Canada. It just does not resonate. Um, and, and I was part of it when Canada won five straight gold medals and they went to the final, you know, every other time. Yeah, I never saw in the nine years that I was broadcasting the World Junior Canada never did not play in the gold medal game. That's unbelievable. It's wow. unbelievable. Wow. And it, like I, I, one thing I always notice, and you touched on this a bit too, that I always respected about them is they they build it 
like like a real team, like an everyday team, so mm -hmm. to speak, instead of just let's put an all-star team together. Like they don't need that team they had in 2005. They don't need to get a team as close as they possibly can to that. That just happened to be. Their concern is always making sure, like we were just talking about NHL-wise, that they have role players, that they have guys that fit in certain roles for them. They may not be the flashy guy to put on the team, but they're the right guy for that team at the right time. And that, I think that's why Canada's always won or always been in that gold medal game here. I, I remember we were talking about 06 before, Jimmy. The 06 team, there was a player by the name of Ryan O'Mara, who was a draft pick of the yeah. New York Islanders. Big yeah. guy, rangy guy, physical, fast, not overly skilled, but a good player. He made such a massive difference in that world junior. On the forecheck, he was vicious mm -hmm. in a good way. I mean, you'd want him on your team. You just don't want to play against him. And, and the entire world junior in Vancouver, a player like that, made a gigantic, gigantic difference. And, and so I look at it all and, you know, again, you think about where Canada was um, back in the days when they weren't winning and then where they are now. And you just see it's what you talked about. They create this amazing family environment where the players want to be part of it, but they understand their roles. For sure. Now I'm going to, I'm going to murder his name. I know up here, I only heard it like four times, but I still will say it wrong. Uh, Denton Matejcik goes out injured. Did I pronounce it right? Yeah, Matejcik is how you say it. You got it. All right, I just want to make sure. Yeah, you uh, he, want to a player. <laughs> yeah, I, I hate, I hate, I hate when people in our business don't care when they do that. Right? Yeah. Like, if you're nervous about pronouncing it wrong, couch it first. Say, hey, I might not do this right, so uh, I apologize ahead of time. I think that's what I, just before you get into Matejcik yeah. and the story, he did come back and play, so that was yeah. the good news for Canada. I, I had the privilege of working with Dave Hodge. Uh, okay. He's a legendary broadcaster in Canada. Gordon, Mer um, Gordon Merler, who is phenomenal. Bob McKenzie. Those are the guys that broke me in and taught me a lot about this business. But I also worked for 16 years with the legendary Doc Emmerich. Yep. And one of the things I learned from all those men, and it, it, every time I'd be with them, it was the same. Understand how a player's name is pronounced. Mm -hmm. And if you go to the player and ask him, he says, well, it doesn't matter. You tell the player it does matter. Yeah. Because we need to know. Yeah. And, and a lot That's of players, you'd be surprised, Jimmy, how many players will say to you, oh, it's okay, just say it whatever, any way you want. And no, that's not how we're going to say it. No. Right now there's a player, a Canadian player, whose name is, most people think, Savoie. That's mm -hmm. how it looks on his sweater. And my old partner, Gordon Miller, appropriately so, the first night of the World Junior, was calling him Savoy, not Savoie, but Savoy. And he said, don't be mad at me when you send me text messages. I'm telling you how the player wanted it pronounced. Yeah. So I'm just telling you. Yeah. It's exactly, you know, actually, and, and we've been here in Boston kind of murdering uh, Matthew Potcher's name. You know, yeah. sometimes we say Poitra or Potra. From what he hasn't said it to me directly yet, but from what I know, he wants it to be Potra. That's it's how Potra. And yeah. I can tell you because, again, Gordon Miller gets it right all the time. Yep. He went right up to the young man and asked him, oh, how do you want your name pronounced? Good, good. And so yeah. told him. So yeah. who, was it, it. who was it, Pierre, that we had on when we were starting off? And we were talking about Doc Emmerich doing that. And he – wasn't he the one? It was Chuck Hayden. It was Chuck Hayden. Right, yeah. And he went to the NHL and he said, we need to do this. We need to get like a pronunciation book. 
or guide, yeah. so to speak, to make sure we have these names right. So yeah, God, God bless Doc Emmerich, man. Doc and Chuck really, Doc and Chuck created that whole yeah. program, and they deserve a lot of credit for. It. They're both in the Hall of Fame, so it doesn't matter. It's just flowery accolades, but they both deserve a heck of a amount of credit for getting yeah. it right and wanting to get it right for a long time. It's great. So back to the, I asked you, Pierre, as we're watching the game. And, you know, the announcers mentioned, uh, Gord brought it up, and he was discussing how they're the only team that doesn't do this. But I said, isn't that a little crazy that Canada doesn't bring over these guys uh, to have as reserves sitting up top in case somebody gets hurt, you know, and you, know, you don't have to worry about travel and everything? And he said, no, nah, they, they, they've been in the position before. They get it done. But, Pierre, you told me a great story about a, a current Boston Bruin. Yeah. that uh, was in a situation like this. Yeah, Matty Grizzlick. It's an amazing story. Uh, the year they won, I think it was 2015 in Russia, uh, Phil Housley was the coach. I hope I have my dates right. I think I do. Um, they brought Matt over, and he didn't make the team. They just did not. That was Seth Jones. That, that was a murderer's role of players. Johnny Goodrow was on that team. Jimmy Vesey was on that team. You go, Seth Jones was on that team. Go look it up. I mean, Gibson was on that team. Right now. John, John oh, Gibson wow. was on that team. I mean, it's a murderer's role. No, Noah Hannafin. No, yeah, that it's a murderer's role player. I mean, it's just crazy. So they they won a, a World Junior Gold with Phil as a coach. And Phil did a great job of that team, by the way. He really did. Um, they won on foreign soil. And it's not easy to win in Russia. It's really, really hard to win in Russia. But anyways... Um, they brought Grizzlick over and he didn't make the team. So they said, well, the tournament's starting and we don't have a spot for you. So we're sending you home. I think it was 36 hours of travel. He was by himself and he was going back to BU um, because that's where he was playing. His partner, by the way, Charlie McAvoy at BU. um, And they put him on the plane and I think he went Moscow, Helsinki. There was a flight problem, I believe, in Helsinki. It took 36 hours for him to get home. He's by himself, and he was like nobody there to take care of my planes, trains, and automobiles. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty <laughs> tough. Um, but it hasn't hurt Maddie at all. He's had a tremendous career and a phenomenal ambassador for uh, the Boston Bruins, for the city, but for yeah. Charlestown in particular, and uh, for Belmont Hill. He's just—he's a great, great, and for BU, he's just a great a good kid. Maddie good Grizzly. father too. Works yeah. on the uh, on the on the bull gang there. Got him. Yeah, that is a good man. I've known John a long time. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. So that's why. So for anyone wondering, there you go. That's uh, that. That was what Pierre told me there. All right. The other game. Speaking of USA, mm-hmm. um, I thought to this point the the best game we've had here. I think hands down that we've been able to watch in this World Juniors. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just a phenomenal game, uh, back and forth. And look, Czech gave it all they could, but USA came through. So I'm going to ask you, like I did in the other uh, in a four three shootout win. By the way. I'm going to ask you, as I did for the first game, what did USA do right to win, and what did the Czechs not do to pull out that win? Well, I don't think the Czechs really made any mistakes. It went to a shootout. So, I mean, the truth of the matter is Jacob Fowler in goal for the Americans. He wasn't even supposed to play today. Trey Augustine was supposed to play in goal today. So hats off to Fowler, who I thought played fantastically well. I think the Americans did a really good job dictating the pace of most of the game. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is – I was surprised the Czechs were able to match a lot of that pace, Jimmy. I really was. I, I wasn't expecting that based on what I'd seen from the from Czechia earlier uh, in the tournament. And then the thing that was really important, I thought, was the BC line, um, you know, with Perro, with Leonard, uh, and Will Smith. That line was tremendous, I thought, for most of the game for Team USA. And then 
obviously the dynamic playmaking of, of Lane Hudson uh, was very important, especially when the Americans had to come from behind uh, for the third tying goal. Um, I thought that was really important. So you put it all together. They had goaltending. Um, they had real good tempo, I thought, in the game. They had one line that was able to dominate most of the game, and they had a defenseman that was an elite game breaker uh, in Lane Hudson. In terms of the Czechs, or Chechia, as, as they're like to be called now, uh, I thought they played a really good game. They deserve yeah, a lot I of credit. I say bad about that. No, and, and Jimmy, I'm just telling you, um, Buffalo Sabre fan, Yuri Kulich is a really good player. Like mm-hmm. he, you saw, he's the only guy that scored in the shootout. He's had a tremendous tournament. He he's not that far away from being uh, ready to play. He's a, he's a real talented kid. And, and between the pipes, I mean the UMass. We're just happy it's the V. It's the UMass Amherst guy. Yeah, that's right. Good for him. And he he almost stole it, Pierre. He really did. I mean, I'm having visions of uh, you know the goalies in the playoffs. And like I go way back to Bill Ranford when he stole that one from the Bruins in 1990. I know it's not the juniors, but you just you, you could see like uh oh and you know I thought that was one of the greatest things about USA winning this too was you get a goalie like Rabel on that in today yeah. who just keeps making save after save and you're doing everything possible like you said they control the tempo sooner or later that goalie tends to get in the head and he starts cooking dinner in their kitchen mm-hmm. and 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 they can't beat him right and so that's what I thought was really impressive about USA even in in the shootout too to be able to overcome whatever mental block maybe that goalie was creating through the through the whole game, uh, I thought was impressive. But man, that's a that's a good goalie that UMass has got going there, and I believe he's a he's a Coyotes pick, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. The Coyotes have have a wealth of uh, wow. players uh, yeah. at the tournament. They really do. I think they have seven or eight. Uh, again, just going off the top of my head. Uh, but you know, what's interesting. One of the things I love about doing the show with you. We had Greg Carvel on. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember back to when Greg, with Coach Carvel was talking to us, but he talked about Rabel. He did. You and know, remember that time period, they were kind of just coming out of a, a so-so Yeah, start. they were roller coastering. Yeah. They were, yeah. they were 100%. But he talked to us about his goaltending. He talked about how good this kid yeah. is, and he's spot on. Yeah. He couldn't be more right. Yeah, for sure. So that was, uh, that was an impressive performance by him, but it fell just short against USA. But let's get to some questions here, Pierre. I'm looking over in the comments section, uh, and I'm seeing a lot of a lot of Habs questions. Uh, we love our Montrealers up there, and of course, that's where you are—a little north right now in Tremblant. And um, I shall say, I, I like some of these questions. So let's get to it. Let's pop up a question right now. Uh, Shane, who's been listening to us a lot, Shane Oliver, uh, saying the Habs need to draft a natural scoring winger. And he also was impressed by Emil Hemming. Uh, your thoughts on that, Pierre? Uh, they, they definitely need to draft a natural scoring winger. But one of the things that's interesting, I think Slavkowski continues to evolve and get better. So that's internal. That's great for them. Yep. Uh, the other thing is Josh Anderson, you know, scored again last night against Carolina. Um, you got two massive power forwards that are pure scorers. I think Cole Caulfield, uh, once they start to establish a better power play, will make a huge difference. Uh, I think Nick Suzuki, even though he's a centerman, is still a natural scorer. And what about Joshua Wad down in uh, down in Laval I, and Sean Farrell down in Laval? I think Montreal has actually got some guys coming. Me too. I look more in the middle, Pierre. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I still think. Center. Don't forget now, Kirby Doc, though. Yeah. So you know, and and you know, Kirby makes a, a difference, obviously there. Um, and so I think that's part of it too. 
uh, not having him has made a huge difference this year in a bad way for Montreal. And before we get it, you mentioned Slavkovsky there, Pierre, before we get to the next question, you and I were kind of texting on this last night. It's a hot topic yeah. around the NHL right now. It appears there will be no hearing for, for Nosen for his hit on Slavkovsky. Yeah. Uh, no, nothing, no fine, nothing uh, to me. And you agreed primary point, principal point of contact there was the head why is there no punishment or not even a fine here? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think maybe not even a penalty. I think maybe they're looking at it from one angle, and I see how they could see it from one angle where he comes in, Stefan Nason comes in to make an open ice hit, and his body rides up the shoulder uh, or the chest area of Slavkoski and then makes contact. Now, that could be why they're saying, no, the principal point of contact was his shoulder, and then he drove through the hit. You know, I wasn't on the call, so I don't know if, if there even was a call. Um, but I can just say that I could see how they could formulate that opinion. The one thing I know the league wants to do, they want to protect players. They don't want headshots. They don't want hits from behind. Uh, and I think they're doing a better job of it than when I was coaching the league, I can tell you that. Um, and last night was borderline, but I thought that when I look at it again from a bunch of different angles, I still see – principal point being the head, but I could see how if you go on fast speed, regular yeah. speed, how you could miss that. I do. I, I think I could see how you could I miss it. I get how you miss it on the ice. It's just afterwards when you have all these angles available yeah. and it's clear, I think clear as day. But here's the thing I said to you, Pierre, right? That this this could be avoided and we need to, these players need to not just get trained, train themselves. Like he's, he's going in for what I thought would have been a great open ice hit, yeah. clean open ice hit. Why do they feel the need right at the last second to go up? Like, why not just keep going straight? It just, I don't get it. And I get sometimes you, you can't avoid it when it's a shorter player, right? But we're not talking about a short player. Here. We're talking <laughs> about a tall guy and Slavkowski. So you need to elevate to reach his head. And he did that. So I just don't understand, like, hey, go for these clean hits. I want them. I love them. I, I want the physicality in the game. And by the way, I'm so sick and tired of every clean hit having to be answered by a fight. But it's just this: the needs to the mentality needs to change. It needs to just it, it's the culture. And I, I agree with you. I think the NHL is doing a better job. But you know, sometimes Pierre and and, and the PA is not going to like me for saying this. And I know we've got some people in the NHL PA that watch this, and I apologize. But at what point is it on the players? The league can do all they can, putting new penalties in or calling things differently, which they have done for the last 15 years. But at what point do the players start to respect each other more? And at what point do they realize that while they may feel invincible in these new the new equipment they have, they're not. Your head is never invincible no matter what you do. I just think the players, the, the onus is on them to fix this. I think, I think the players have done a better job. There are a couple things, though, and you made a lot of really good points there, Jimmy, but here are a couple things to think about. Number one, players that are coming in to play in the NHL, most of them, not all of them, but most of them have worn full face shields. So they feel invincible coming in. So they're, they're not afraid of coming up high on hits because they're not going to pay a price. Back in the day when players didn't wear helmets or players didn't wear facial protection, you didn't, <laughs> you didn't see that. Yeah. You didn't, yeah. you didn't know. So they talk about respecting players. Well, that's part of it. the other thing. And, and I know they're going to people say, what a Neanderthal. No, I don't mean this in a bad way at all. The instigator rule. 
you know, the instinct used to be when you'd have a high hit, you had to answer for it. Now guys are afraid that because of the instigator rule. So yeah. there's a few things there that, I, but I, that can be adjusted. And I think eventually they will. But the one thing I'd say compared to when I was really involved at the game level, you know, coaching and scouting and managing parts of it, mm-hmm. um, the respect level of the players to me is a lot better now player to player than it used to be. I really believe that. And we've got a bigger league than ever. There are 32 teams in the league. You know, when I started in the league, there were 21. So, you know, I really respect what's happened, actually. And I think the players that are the leaders within the association feel the same way that I do and feel the same way with a lot of what you said. We can still go further. And I think they will. I really do. I believe they will. And by the way, I don't think you're Neanderthal at all. I I think that the instigator penalty has made these hits more possible. I, I think that players would think twice. I, I know people today, younger younger fans, younger players don't want to say that. And they say, oh, you're crazy. It didn't prevent it. No, you thought about it. You're not going to go and take a headshot at a guy if you know that, you know, uh, Chris Nyland or somebody is going to come flying after you and, and take care of you for that cheap shot. You're not, you just, you're not going to do it. Well, it, yeah, no, you're not. But here, I'll just tell you another way you can take care of it because I've seen it happen. <laughs> um, you tell your tough guy to go on the ice. Well, like and tell, said, right. yeah. tell the star player of the other team, the next time your guy touches my star, I'm not going after him. Yeah. I'm going after you. Yeah. So you better calm him down. And you know what? Nothing polices a team better than peer pressure. Yeah. And if the star player comes up to the tough guy and he says, don't do that again, because yeah. if you do, I'm going to kick your butt. <laughs> you know, so um, that makes a difference. It really does. The yeah. internal peer pressure. And, and I know I've seen it happen before and it does make a difference. I hear you. All right. Let's go to some more questions here. What do we got? Should the Habs call up Wi-Fi? Speaking of uh, having somebody yeah. to answer to a hit like that. There you go. So, so but the, you know what? And I, I think Arbor, deser- Arbor Jack and I were talking about, obviously, I d- think he deserves a huge amount of credit for the way he's made an NHL roster and, and even – made a team coming out of junior and you look at all the things he's had to do to stay relevant as a player. I think it's phenomenal. That being said, they weren't counting on Jaden Struble playing this well. I don't think they were counting on the consistency they've gotten from Justin Barron and Jordan Harris is just a better player than Arbor Jack guy. Now maybe they slide Jack guy up to the wing, like the Canadians used to do with Rick Chartra back in the day. You know, he could play defense and he could play wing. I mean, they could do that. Yep. But, you know, I think right now Arbor's in a numbers situation, you know, and that's part of the problem. But if you look at – he's not beating out Caden Gooley and he's not beating out Mike Matheson. And right yeah. now he's not beating out Jaden Struble. So, I mean, it's a tough – he's in a tough situation right now. He's in a real tough situation. But here's the thing, Pierre, too, that I I, I, I get it, and I know it's hard for, for fans to see a guy come right in and, and, and make the roster at the NHL level and then have to go back down to the AHL and, and – you know, I get it. The common reaction, well, isn't that kind of backwards? Aren't you ruining it? I don't see it that way. And I think no. you agree with me. No. I think it's better. If you can get, if you can afford to have a player like Jack I go back to the NHL, I mean the AHL, and get that seasoning and, and just get that experience, uh, I think in the long run, it's it's going to do wonders for him. I really uh, do. No, I, I agree 100%. And I know people see going to the American Hockey League as a demotion and almost a punishment, and it's not. 
We've no. had numerous guests on this show talk about Lou Yu, uh, yep. Lou Lamorello created yep. New Jersey Devils. And the only player I think – there are only two, I think, that were ever New Jersey drafted uh, and played in the NHL without playing in the American Hockey League. One was Scotty Niedermeyer and one was Scotty Gomez. Everybody else that was drafted under Lou's tenure, they all got a t- – even Billy Guerin, Marty Brodeur, they all got a taste of Lou Yu. And so Detroit for years, I told you about Simon Edmondson how long ago, and now all of a sudden he's up. Yep. But you know what? He could have been on Detroit from the start of the year. But exactly. Steve Eisenman knows he's got to go down, do his chores, and eventually he's going to make a difference. And he will make a big difference there. He's yeah. a heck of a player. So I, I think, especially for defensemen, the American Hockey League is not a bad thing. It actually is a really good developing situation. I'm for trying him. to think. It will come to me maybe maybe during this episode, maybe another time, and I'll remember. But there was a, a defenseman I covered for the Bruins uh, that, that raved about that experience. And he said, I, if they had thrown me right in, they wanted to, there was a lot, I forget who, it's going to kill me, Pierre. Might have been Mark Stewart. I don't know. Back in the day. Well, but he, and then Mark was part of the big trade with Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, but he, so he could have been Mark. Yeah. It, he, I just remember him saying, I didn't, I didn't look at that as demotion. I went down there and I learned so much. And it humbles you too. It really does. Not, not in a bad way. It's not like a slap in the face or anything, but it humbles you. It makes you appreciate what you have ahead of you that much more. Well, I, again, I think it's all part of the developmental process for every player. And I, Montreal, everybody said, well, Montreal would just stockpile players through the draft. Their development was – they were the first team that really spent a lot of money on development. And all the players would go down to the Maritimes, uh, and they would be in Halifax. And some te- some years they were called the Nova Scotia Voyagers. Other times they were called the Halifax Voyagers. Okay. But they played, they played in Halifax. And what I can tell you is there's a famous tavern at the top of Halifax. It's called the Midtown Tavern. And when you walk into the Midtown Tavern in Halifax, and I hope there are a bunch of great Halifax people watching this, you they could tell you the same thing I'm about to tell you. It's like a shrine to all the players that played for the Nova Scotia Voyagers that eventually played for the Montreal Canadiens, yeah. whether it was Larry Robinson, whether it was Dougie Jarvis, whether it was Doug Riseborough, whether it was Murray Wilson. didn't matter. All these guys had to go do their chores down in the American Hockey League. Here's the best one for you. In 1971, Ken Dryden was playing for the Halifax or Nova Scotia Voyagers, depending what they were called that year. And what is amazing is he got blown out. His last game in the American Hockey League, he got lit up like a red light. I'm telling you. Okay. He gets called up to Montreal. The rest is history. The Canadians want to win the Stanley Cup. His, his last game, in, you'd have to look it up, Jimmy. Yeah, well, he gave up six or eight goals in his last game in the American Hockey League before the Canadians called him up in 1971. That that explains, too, Pierre, because I remember when I lived in Montreal, too, and I meet there's a lot of people from Halifax that migrate down to Montreal, you know, especially working in the pub scene. Right. There's Hurley's and McLean's there. And they're all, you know, born Canadians fans. And I was like, I would always, oh, did you become a Canadians fan when you moved there? Like, no, hell no. I mean, I was born into it. And now that explains it. Now I know why. I always wondered why there were so many Canadians fans from Halifax. Now I know well, it's split. It's kind of split in in the Maritimes. It's either t- mostly Toronto or Montreal. They're split. Okay. So I, I have one more story for you. Yeah, I'm working for the Ottawa Senators. This is my first time around, and we had a, a lockout. There was an NHL lockout, and so Randy Sexton was a general manager in Ray Shiro. They call me in the office. They say, "Hey, we really would like you to go down to." Uh, PI Charlottetown and work with our players down there, help Davey Allison, our coach down there, and Johnny Phelan, who was an assistant coach. 
So I said, sure. And I go, how long do you want me there? Oh, no, you're going to go there till the, we come back. So we can't tell you the exact amount of time. So I said, well, I don't have that many clothes. Said, don't worry about it. Just put it on a credit card. You know, go buy some clothes and you'll be at the rink anyways. I said, yeah, I'll be at the rink. So okay. there was no bridge back then. They were building the bridge uh, from the mainland oh. to Prince Edward Island. So it was a ferry ride so or a plane ride in. And uh, I spent a ton of time down there. But this is the best part of the story. One night uh, I left my hotel. I was looking to go out for dinner. And the doorman says, you know, Mr. McGuire, you should try going across the street. There's a place called the Merchant Man Pub. So I said, okay, I'll take your advice. I'll go. So I walked across the street and at the bar is a beautiful oil painting, and it is spec life size. Okay. It's spectacular of Doug Harvey, the late oh, Doug. Wow. Nice. So I walked in, and I'm just sitting there and sampling some of the local product. And I say, um, "Why did you guys buy that in an auction? How did you get that? I've seen this very same painting at the Forum in Montreal. The two guys working the bar look at me. Was that's our father." <laughs> Doug Harvey's sons were running the Merchant Man Pub in Charlottetown, PEI. And we had such a great night. They had amazing stories. And, you know, for the younger people that are watching or listening, Bobby Orr is considered the best defenseman in the history of the game. A lot of people think Bobby Orr was created because of Doug Harvey. Yeah. There are a lot of people that would tell you Doug Harvey was the preeminent defenseman in the history of the league. Yeah. That's great. I, I love I love when you're on the road and you walk into places like that and it, you can just feel the history, you know, and you, you meet somebody and you get these stories. That's one of the fun parts of traveling in our, our business. Yeah. I'm sure you, you can attest to that, Pierre. Let's go to another question here. Why, uh, Justin LeBron, uh, why do you think the Flyers are doing so well? Oh, my gosh. How long have we been on this story? I know, right? We've been on this for a while. I'll tell you a few things. Their coach, John Tortorella, is coaching as well or better than anybody in the league, number one. Number mm -hmm. two, uh, they've had tremendous goaltending, whether it's Urson and goal who got hurt last night in Vancouver or Carter Hart. They've had tremendous goaltending. They deserve a lot of credit for that. Um, their defense has really grown by leaps and bounds, and I put a lot of that on Brad Shaw, who's the assistant coach working with John Tortorella there in Philadelphia. But I, I think, and we talked about this, if they make the playoffs – I have to think Travis Connecting, if he keeps us up, is going to be one of the guys. you got to consider him for the MVP of the league. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing, too, is getting Sean Couturier back. Couturier mm -hmm. has been tremendous for them, uh, makes such a big difference. You know, he was their version of Patrice Bergeron. That's, yeah, that's just sure. a fact. That's just how it is. Yeah. So there's a lot of things, but it all starts with John um, Tortorella. And, I, you know, I've had some great moments with John and some not so great moments with John. <laughs> and I would tell you, man, I, I really respect him and I think he's doing a phenomenal job and he deserves a lot of credit. I'll tell you, I rem I don't forget what the question was, but I'll never forget. And this is when I was young, uh, starting off in the business and we're in a little scrum after practice there at the, at the garden. And, uh, Torch is giving us his, uh, his media address there. And I asked him a question. He looked at me and he said, it's a great question, but now I'm going to rip you. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, boy. But he respected the question. See, that's the thing that people don't get about him. He's he's not – he comes off as a real mean person, but he's not really. No, he, I don't think he is. I, I he really knows, don't. There's a softy in there, and I'll tell you something else. If he knows that you know your stuff, he'll respect you. He may disagree with you, 
but he respects you. And that's what I always felt from him. And I appreciated dealing with him through the years was just that mutual respect. Like, okay, Murph, I think that's a crazy question, but I can see where it's coming from and I respect it. And he's always been like that. So I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I told, I would agree with that. I think that's well said. You know, I'm giving him all that's praise for coaching in Philadelphia. You know where he coached really well? And I'm being solely serious here is Columbus. Oh, yeah. What he did with that lineup, night in and night out, and I, I was there a lot um, back in the day, and, and he did a magnificent job coaching in Columbus. He really did. You know, was Vancouver a, a disaster? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Were there times in New York where it wasn't good? Mm -hmm, 100%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were. There were times it wasn't good. But I'll tell you one thing. Talk to the guys – with the Buffalo Sabres back when Buffalo was really good in the old odd, and he was the assistant to uh, John Muckler. Yeah. He, he was running a power play that was either third or fourth in the league year in and year out. He did a fantastic job with those guys. Patty yeah. Lafontaine was on that power play. Uh, Yuri Himalev was on that power play. Um, the late Dale Howard Chuck was on that power play. I mean, Doug Bodger was on that power play. Remember, because I used to have to come up with schemes to try to shut it down. <laughs> and, and I can tell you, Torch did as, as good a job as anybody in the league back then with the talent he had to run an unbelievably good power play. Yeah, he was the coach uh, on the May Day team, right? He was. Yep. May Day is another story. Do you want to hear it or not? Yeah, let's go. Why not? It's it's the last oh, show of the year, so why not? Why <laughs> My last game as a head coach of the Hartford Whalers, we were in the old Boston Garden. It was, oh, I think, the last game of the year. It's great. This um, is great. Brent's, or no, Brian Sutter's coaching Boston with Tommy McVie, and we beat Boston that night. And had we not beaten Boston, they would have played Washington, but which probably would have been easier for them. But we beat Boston that night. They had to play Buffalo, and that's what led to May Day. Oh, yeah. Because if they beat us that night in Boston, they don't have to go to Buffalo. Yeah. But they I, lost. I remember that clear, no pun intended, clear as day. Uh, I remember that, that series. I, that's when I was going to the games with my grandfather. And that team, too. I mean, Boston, the, the fan base here was so high on that team. I mean, they, they, thought, they thought they were going to the cup, man. I mean, they took care of Montreal throughout the season. I think they went undefeated against the Habs. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Maybe they lost one. In in the uh, season, they were they were really good. I mean, yeah, we played that back in the day, and even if it was still going today, Hartford Boston was a dirty little oh, secret yeah. in the league. Nobody wanted to talk about unless you lived in those two markets. You have no idea. Yep. I, mean, I, I coached in Pittsburgh, Philly. You know, I coached in Ottawa, Montreal. Uh, you know, all these different rivalry series. Uh, Hartford Boston was about as nasty as the was, man. There were villains on both sides. There were guys with, you know, white hats on both sides, and there were guys with dark hats on both sides, too. Right. And what a lot of people don't know, obviously, and you you coached him, uh, Al Samuelson, was, you know, when people hear about the Samuelson-Neely rivalry uh, and how that, you know, came about, they're always thinking about Pittsburgh, Pierre. Yeah, no. They, they forget that it started in Hartford. It started when in that Hartford mm -hmm. Boston rivalry that that's where the animosity came between those two. And, and then it just got a lot worse when he got to Pittsburgh. So, well, you know, well, thanks to you. <laughs> I think we talked about that once, but we'll just give you the Coles notes. They had Adam Oates and Neely. Those guys were amazing. They were peanut butter and yep. jelly. They were phenomenal together. And Adam was a right-hand shot that liked to attack your right defense. He'd come down the Bruins left side and he gained the line, pull up and obviously Neely full stride going to the net. Mm -hmm. And we knew that. And, we wanted him to move the puck to Neely in the neutral zone in the smaller Boston Garden, and we were able to do that, and we knew that, and Alfie stepped up, and that's what led yep. to the initial injury 
yeah. out of camp. But, you know, we had had that figured out. And that was just some really good scouting and some great coach messaging from from Bob Johnson and Barry Smith and Rick Patterson and Rick Keogh and all the guys I had the privilege of working with. But that's what happened. That's the initial one yeah. that really hurt Cam. Um, yeah. It was tough to watch. I mean, I have so much. How could you not respect Cam Neely? Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he's player. a prototypical Boston Bruin. He's, he's yeah. everything you want in a power forward. You know, it's yeah. just amazing. Yeah, those are those are days. All right, let's go to a few more questions here. If we got there, we go. Another one from uh, Justin. What should, the Habs' resolution should be to fix the power play? You think? Yes, yes. We've, <laughs> talked, we, we've talked about that. So I think they have the answer coming. Um, you know, so Lane Hudson's going to eventually be that guy. Yeah, and I'm excited for him. He, is he going to be able to defend at an elite level in the NHL? No, he's not strong enough right now. But is he going to be able to run a power play at an elite level in the NHL? The answer is yes, he is. Yeah. So I think that's going to be the rejuvenated power play. And I think the guy that will benefit the most from that, I'm telling you right now, is Cole Caulfield. Yeah, it is. He's Look, I know people are worried about how much he struggled. This is These are kids, man. They're developing. This is part of the process. And – it's going as we we had Kent Hughes on here before in this episode, one of our best, if not the best we've had, other than Scotty Bowman, obviously. Yeah. And uh, it, it was just it was great to listen to his his patience, Pierre. Like just he's so even keeled, and I love that. You got to be one, especially when you're going in a rebuild, but especially for that market. And I, I just say to Habstrings, yeah, just ride the wave right now, ride the wave because I'm saying in three years. Maybe even sooner. You're going to be contenders. You, you really are. And you're going to have some money to spend too. So yeah, No, I, I think that's really well said. And look at the next two games are critical. You go into Florida, you play the Panthers, then you got to go over and play in Tampa. Yep. And then you're going to get a little bit of relief from the road. Obviously, this is a tenuous road trip. The Canes started before Christmas and will finish after New Year's. Um, but here, here's the one thing. I, I agree with everything Jimmy said about Canadians and their rebuild. Like it's the first time I've really believed in what they're trying to do. Yeah. And I think it all starts at the top. Yeah. I think Jeff Molson figured out that you just couldn't keep patching. And so we got to have a long-term strategy and they do that in the beer business. I know that. And it worked really well for that family. Yep. And you know what? I think the hockey side of it's starting to work too. And that's a tribute to Jeff Gordon. And it's a tribute obviously to, to Kent. And I have to tell, one other thing, I know yeah. I'm long-winded on this. Yeah. I tra- I've been traveling all over the place, and I'm walking through the airport the other day in Boston, and gentleman comes up to me very politely. I'm at the baggage claim, and I'm waiting for my wife to come out. Um, and the gentleman goes, I listened to that Ken Hughes interview, and he says, I got to tell you, I hate the Canadians, but I love the interview. I've got, you know, I grew up in Boston. I'm here. A, a ton of Bruins fans told me the same thing. They're like, that guy's awesome. Like, wow. Yeah, like, yeah. like the answers he gave you and just his vision. It's like, why can't we get, well, no, I'm not going to take a shot. At no, Donnie. no, no. Donnie's, done, hey, Donnie's, Donnie's done a great, done job. great job. Donnie's done a great yeah, job. Yeah. But I'll tell you in Montreal, it's great. That, now here's a question though, Pierre. Yep. All right. They're only a, you know, they're hovering around a wild card spot right yeah. now. I Do I think they're going to be there at the end? Probably not. They're, they're going to drop a bit. I don't think they'll have a huge drop. But if they were to be there, do you make a move at the deadline to get that wild card spot, or do you stay the course? No. Here, The chip in the game they have right now, 
more than most teams, depth and goal. Mm-hmm. So Jake Allen would be a sought-after commodity. I don't know how much he would fetch, but he'd get you something. Sam Montembeau, with the contract that he has, very digestible, cap-friendly. You'd probably be able to move him if you had to. Caden Primo, I thought, played very well against Carolina and played well in his previous start to that before Christmas. Um, he'd be another. So you got depth and goal. But yeah. we haven't talked about Jacob Fowler enough. And you heard me ask Kent about that when we were on the air with him. And I would say, Jimmy, and I could be wrong, if he's ready to come out and they think he only needs 40 starts in the American League and then he's ready for the NHL, I think that's where they'll start to be active in Montreal. They'll move a goalie. That's where I, they're not deep enough at center. You and I have both talked about that at this point. Uh, especially, you know, we haven't talked about Newhook enough. That was yeah. a big injury, too. We talked oh. about Kirby Doc. We haven't talked about Alex Newhook. That, that was a big injury for them as well. So when they get those two guys back, then they get a little deeper. Then what do you do with Jake Evans? And maybe right now you keep Jake Evans because he's valuable. He does a lot of the dirty work we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. But the Canadians need more pop down yeah. the wings. They do. Yeah. And I think one of our questioners asked that at the beginning. Yeah, it's just hard when you don't have the great sentiment to really judge properly because right now they're just not deep enough at center. I hear. You. All right, let's go to another question here. Oh, there we go. PEI. See, half the half the people were fan, have fans, and fifteen workers were leaf fans. Uh-huh. <laughs> I bet you back in the barn and the farm they were rumbling around too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he probably knows what I'm talking about. And P- you know what? I was there for probably four and a half months. I, I just, I loved it. I, the people were so wholesome and, and kind. The food was great. Um, you know, it was just, it was an awesome hockey environment. It was just tremendous to be there. And a lot of real good players uh, came through PEI back in those days and ended up playing in the NHL for long periods of time. Uh, one of them was Radic Bonk, whose son Oliver is playing in the World Junior right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Another guy was Lance Pitlick, who's got two boys, uh, one playing in the league now and a nephew playing in the league and another one playing at University of Minnesota. So, I mean, I, there were a lot that I remember that were there that were really – the late Pavel Dimitri, oh, my gosh. Pav was, you know, heartbreaking story. He was there for a long period of time. So, got a lot of respect for those kids and, and what they do at the American Hockey League. But what a place to develop players. Charlottetown PEI was phenomenal. And, you know, one more thing, and we'll get into this next time, but Shane wanted me to say to you that he uh, he checked out Doug McLean's draft day. And he had said to me, he messaged me privately. I just wanted to know this. He said, Pierre's going to do something like that with the stories you must have from the draft floor or just being being a broadcaster at the draft. He said, you could probably write a hell of a book. <laughs> one of the best draft stories I don't really want to say too much because I just break some okay. stuff. But it's 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 fun. Um, I remember in 1990, we were sitting on the floor of the Vancouver football stadium. Uh, it was BC Place, I think it was called at the time. There were 50,000 people there. It was my first mm-hmm. draft working. Um, and we'd had a big meeting at the Pan Pacific Hotel the night before the draft. And uh, Craig Patrick was running the meeting. Greg Malone was there, the chief scout. Scotty Bowman was there, just been hired. Barry Smith, uh, Rick Keel, Rick Patterson, the late Bob Johnson, all the decision makers in the organization were there. Staffs weren't as big as they are now. Mm-hmm. And Scotty looks at me away from her. He says, are you sure about Yager? I said, yeah, he's the best player I've seen. I mean, 
So he says, you better be right. Like <laughs> I said, well, I think I'm right. I hope the other guys agree. And um, I remember sitting on the draft floor and uh, Vancouver picked second. They got a huge ovation. Quebec picked first. Quebec picked uh, Owen Nolan. The second pick was Peter Nedved. The third pick was to Detroit. And they took uh, Peter Ned, or they took um, Primo, Keith Primo. Fourth was Philadelphia. They took Mike Ricci. And then fifth was Pittsburgh. Yarmir Yager fell on our lap. Wow. Because number six was Scott Sissons, who went to the Islanders. But Yarmir fell on our lap. And the man that never got enough credit for anything on Yarmir uh, was Craig Patrick because of his USA hockey connections and international hockey connections from the 1980 Olympic team. Craig knew people that could help us keep Yarmir in North America, not go back to the Czech Republic at the time. It was Czechoslovakia then. Um, and yeah. Craig was able to do the deal and keep Yarmir there. And as an 18-year-old, he just dominated the league. It was just scary. But that was all on Craig Patrick. He did an amazing job with that. He really still did. Playing. He's still playing Yarmir. Uh, <laughs> so I don't even know. I didn't count the hours, and, and neither did anybody else that worked with him over the years. But he would keep you out there. Like I skated a lot of, a lot of hours with him. And again, Jimmy, one other quick story. And it's real quick. Yeah. Rick Keel, who now is semi-retired, I think out in Las Vegas, yeah, um, know, Rick. he coached and played. He was a 50 goal scorer in the NHL. He never got enough acclaim for helping Yarmir work on a shot. He never did. Rick, Rick did a phenomenal, phenomenal job when Yarmir was 18 and 19 working on his shot and his release. And, Yarmir used to score from two feet away, and then he started to be able to score from eight feet, and then he used to be able to score from 15 feet, and all of a sudden he became unstoppable. But Rick never got enough credit for that, and he deserves yeah. a lot of the credit. I'm sure you know that, and if you've done some workout sessions with him on the ice, the weights, when he goes end-to-end -end with the weights. <laughs> Before it was – everybody does it now. They all run the stairs and all this stuff. Oh, my God. Yarmir was doing that, and – People would be sitting in the stands eating popcorn and drinking beer, and he'd be running the stadium stairs yeah. before games. So, so Pierre, the, the year the Bruins – remember, he was on the Bruins when they lost to the Blackhawks in 2013. And so, you know, we're there. I want to say it was after maybe game three or four, whatever one of those the Bruins won. So I'm writing stories. You know, I finish one story, and, I, and I'm like, I'm going to be here for a while. I'm going to go see if I can find some food and some water maybe a beer here and there. And uh, I'm walking around and then I just, I'm walking down the, the hallway where the dressing rooms are. And then, you know, where you walk, walk out the ramp out to the bench and the, and the ice. And I just, I hear somebody skating out there and this is after a game. Okay. And it's dark, you know, and then I look and, and there's Yarga doing sprints net to net goal line to goal line with weights on his shoulders and strapped to his stomach. No, he was at another level. So you talk about Yarmer. You talk about Yarmer, and he was really good at this. I'll tell you another guy that nobody really saw it. Uh, you had to be one of his coaches or his teammates to see it was what Paul Coffey did. What Paul Coffey would do post game was unbelievable on the bike. And, wow. you know, like I know all these guys, great Tour de France riders and all that. I would have liked to have seen Paul. Just try to go on the – like, I'm telling you, this yeah. guy's fitness levels were crazy, That's crazy. Awesome. And he he just – when guys saw that, they felt guilty if they weren't doing it. So yeah. it was infectious. And then Yarmer came, and Kevin Stevens and Mark Rick here looking over like, what the heck's this guy doing? You know? <laughs> and you know already, big Kevin. Yeah. And yeah. What the heck is that guy doing? You know? 
Uh, we got to get him on the pod. Sometime. Then, you know what? He's got it. He's coming on. No, yeah. you know we're getting him on. He's coming. All right. We'll get him on. We'll get him on for sure. Well, listen, it's been a great one. And I can't believe last episode, like I said, of uh 2023 year, man, this year flew. They don't lie, Pierre. Hey, the older you get, the, the more time flies. It's you got a little bit more time than me. So don't worry. <laughs> no myth. I hear you, my friend. Well, yeah, you're in for the long haul for sure. Yeah. Listen, we want to thank our, uh, our crew here too. Uh, Sonny and Nilio, like this, this has been great working with these guys and mm -hmm. the Sick Podcast Network, uh, and of course Tony Marinaro has got a, a podcast on here as well. We urge you to check that out. He goes every Monday to Friday, and and speaking of, I've got some news of uh, going Monday to Friday, uh, starting next Wednesday, uh, every day through the week. Of course, we won't be on New Year's Day, we won't be on on January second, but starting next Wednesday, January third. We'll do exactly what we just did now, 4 to 5 p.m. live, and, that, and that's going to be our slot. So Monday through Friday, 4 to p.m., four to 5 p.m. Eastern, live here on the Sick Podcast Network. You can catch the eye test, and we're really looking forward to it, Pierre. Yeah, no, I can't wait. It's really exciting. Um, so many people have really jumped on board, and it's, it's really flattering when you think about how many passionate hockey people there are out there that want to actually listen. Oh, yeah and watch so we're grateful for that i know jimmy and i have talked a lot both on the air and off the air but our guests every time they leave they text us and they're like can i do that again and it's yeah. really cool that that feels to great say that you know that's yeah. part of the whole deal they want to talk to the fans too yep you know because they're they're always in such structured environments and i think it's important for them to get out and get their messages out there too and yeah we've got some really big surprises coming up in terms of guests as you know jimmy we just don't want to share them yet but it's it's really exciting down the road what we're about to do. So we're looking forward to it, and eventually we're going to do some remotes too. Is what we've discussed here. Well, I know one. I know one that I can't wait to do. Yes, we can't but say it in hometown. We just can't. Well, I yeah. got a couple hometowns, but one of them in particular. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. So uh, we'll we'll announce that soon. I hope. But uh, listen, we want to thank all the listeners out there. Uh, happy New Year to you. Good health, good fortune, and uh, you know, if you got if you got good health and family. You're doing all right, and we're glad to have you here as part of the iTest family. Thanks a lot. For Pierre, I'm Jimmy Murphy. Happy New Year. We'll talk to you on January 3rd. And that's a wrap. Hope you don't miss us too much until next time. Follow the iTest with Pierre McGuire and Jimmy Murphy on YouTube, Facebook, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts.